Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. It is unofficially Education Week on Smart Talk this week. We'll visit Lebanon Valley College on a Smart Talk road trip Wednesday to discuss higher education. And we'll also focus on charter schools and a group of parents that want to secede from their local school district. But today we start right at the top. Pennsylvania Secretary of Education Pedro Rivera is with us to address several different topics related to educating the state's children and young adults. Secretary Rivera, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here today, Scott. Appreciate it. We have open lines today. If you have a question or a comment, we know that uh, education, just saying we're going to talk about education is so broad, but uh, there are so many different topics that are related to it. Uh, If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that's 1-800-729-7532. Secretary Rivera, as I just said, uh, if we just say we're going to talk about education today, that sounds so broad. So we'll talk about uh, so many issues on an individual basis. But let me kind of start with a broad question, breaking it down a little bit. What is the biggest challenge that Pennsylvania schools, and I'll break it down to K through 12, mm-hmm. that Pennsylvania schools are facing today? Yeah. Uh, education is is extremely um, complex, as as you shared, and you know whenever you you just mention the term education, especially when mentioning, you know, public education, so it just resonates so many feelings, so many thoughts, and and just uh, you can create a, a momentum in conversations for days. But I think you know, especially right now, and in, in, in the current environment and current climate, um, there are a number of challenges, and you know, first of course, um, you know, which is probably one of the greatest challenges that keeps us moving day to day, and also keeps us engaged, is really meeting the needs of children. Um, you know, education has evolved and the educational system has evolved over, you know, over the course of the past, you know, so many, um, you know, decades. And whereas at one time, students came to school and, and we focused solely on uh, educating them in, in reading and writing and math. And now there, there are so many other, you know, issues of support that schools provide for students and, of, you know, not only um, instructional delivery, but, you know, if students are coming to school and they have um, health problems, we, we help connect them to, um, you know, to, to supports to to engage um, in those problems, um, mental health issues, um, issues of food security. Um, you know, so so when you look at you know what schools, how schools engage today, and the services they that they provide to um, communities, it, it is just so holistic. And you know, of course, someone will say, "Well, you shouldn't be doing that." And um, you know, and, and absolutely understanding the argument. But until you are a classroom teacher, or even if you're a parent, and you understand that you want to engage with your own children one on one, if your child's hungry. They're not going to learn. If your child has a headache or can't see or can't hear or, or is not physically well, they're not going to be able to learn. If your child is dealing with, you know, childhood um, stressors and, and trauma and many of the issues that many of our children are dealing with today, they can't learn. So, you know, it's incumbent upon us as the educator to kind of address many of those um, issues so that we can bring them to school and, and you know, engage with them day to day so that they're better students um, the day they leave us. I think the second, if I can share, um, you know, as well, Scott, is, is the fact that, um, you know, education is, you know, it varies. We have 500 school districts across the Commonwealth. 174 charter schools and the needs of communities and, and the expectation of communities and the relationships communities have with their schools vary district to district. And we as an educational system, I mean, if you've met any teacher, you know how humble they are. 
They don't like to tout and you know their successes. They don't like to celebrate their successes. However, we know through customer service research, you know, if there's a bad experience, you're seven times more likely to share the bad experience. So one of the things that I've been engaging in in visiting schools is you know asking teachers, please, you know, talk about the successes in your classroom. Let's celebrate what's going on in schools across the Commonwealth because we realize that parents are saying, "I love my school." But I, you know, I'm really worried. I, I'm, you know, I, I, the critical, um, you know, position public education is in, and and so that's always interesting. So if I visit a hundred schools, and um, you know, although you know we're up in the in the 30s and 40s now, but practically every school there are parents there, and you have a conversation with parents like, this is a great school, but I don't know about this public education thing. So if, you know, 90% of the parents that we engage in say, I love this school. This is a great school. And these are even some schools that have been classified as, you know, lower performing schools. They're like, I love this school. This school is, is doing an amazing job with my child. And yet, but I'm concerned about the overall state of public education. So I think we have to do a much better job as an education community of, of pushing and really sharing our successes. Sharing our successes is one thing, but being realistic is the other. Because let's face it, there are challenges that many schools mm-hmm. do face. Absolutely. And I think that's where a good, strong, holistic accountability system is important. I mean, the governor has given us the, the direction of moving forward and thinking beyond standardized tests for, for a measure of school performance. What we've recommended under Governor Wolf through the Future Ready PA um, you know, index is not only looking at standardized tests. Right now, we're almost 90% aligned to standardized tests in terms of school improvement. It doesn't give us the full picture. It tells the story of what students need from community to community. So now we want to look at reading level attainment, math level attainment, chronic absenteeism, English language acquisition for English language learners, uh, meeting the needs of special needs students. We want to know that kids have access to high quality programs, AP, IB, dual enrollment, career, career and technical education programs. So we want to measure more, but we want to measure factors that, that are actually important to communities and to families across the Commonwealth. You've touched on about eight things already that I <laughs> want to discuss over the next hour. It's not going to be enough time, I'm going to tell you that right now. But your first answer when you said that uh, our biggest challenge is meeting the needs of students. Pennsylvania's Constitution says that students should be getting an equal education. How can you do that with what you just described. Mm-hmm. So it's always, you know, great conversation around equal versus equitable. And, and you know, we know, um, you know, as, as, you know, citizens of the Commonwealth, we, you know, it's, it's one of those, um, you know, challenges we, we live with day to day. And, you know, I think if we have holistic measures, that's a start because you need a baseline. You need some North Star to, to drive towards. We all need a goal. But I also realize that, you know, in, under our current um, education system and especially under um, the system of funding in our current education system, there still remain some, some very significant gaps. Now, great work done by the General Assembly and ultimately signed by the governor. The Basic Education Funding Commission w- was an amazing move in, in the right direction. And I had an opportunity to sit on both sides of that table, one as a superintendent um, testifying you know, as to the need for equitable funding and then as the secretary supporting um, the process. And it is an amazing, you know, the, the, the formula is a great formula. And, you know, for it to have been passed in a bipartisan, bicameral manner, you know, two administrations, it's a great um, example of how of government that works. Now, we also know a formula only, you know, impacts what's being invested into the system. And, and that continues to be where some of the, the challenges lie. I mean, there are, there are some communities that, um, you know, are still investing, a, you know, a little over $9,000 a child. And some communities that are upwards of thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars a child, and that's where the equity conversation comes into account. That formula that uh, you mentioned, 
Uh, I, I Pennsylvania, at one time, as you're well aware, was uh, was called having the, the most inequitable system, funding system mm-hmm. in the country. So Governor Wolf did sign that last summer, but it will be 20 years, and only half of the school districts will have, you know, had some impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems like a whole. Well, it seems it is. It's a whole generation of students, and maybe even more than that that in some of the poorer school districts will not see that equitable funding. Absolutely. So it's so it's not until they see the full impact, it's until they realize, um, you know, that equitable standard. So, you know, unfortunately, what's happened over, over the course of, you know, history and, and education, without, absent a funding formula, you know, the... the um, uh, School funding was made in a very capricious manner, and and so some school districts were were fortunate, and other school districts, you know, were not as fortunate. So as a result, when you think of just legacy cost, many of which are you know, whole uh, show series is on them on themselves, right, right? right? But because of those, we've created some holes, and it's like trying to fill a hole. So you know, the larger the hole, the more the more soil you'll need to fill the hole. The, the smaller the hole, the less soil you'll need. So there are some school districts that are just now starting to realize their 2009-2010 funding levels, and and so those are the types of districts that will have to that will have to continue to make significant um, investments in to just bring them up to, to you know, 2017 levels. Now, when you say make significant investments. Mm-hmm. I mean, what that means is yeah. somehow they have to find some money, and in today's environment, that means property taxes. And a lot of these poor school districts, that's one of the, the, the problems they face, mm-hmm. is they just don't have a lot of property to tax. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it's twofold. One is absolutely more revenue. I mean, whether through the state or, or locally right now in our current system through property tax, we've also been given, you know, the governor has also directed us to look at ways to find, to, to allow for efficiencies um, in school districts. So right now we have, um, we've recommended to the General Assembly a new graduation requirement, which is extremely rigorous, right? It, it, move, it takes a composite score for the Keystone, but also looks at um, college readiness standards as well as career readiness standards. And, you know, that will help us move away from some of the really cost, costly interventions that schools are, are engaging in now. Um, pro, uh, project-based assessments, for example, or even some of the remedial courses for a standardized test, which at the end of the day, as we've been hearing, you know, from educators and parents, I don't want my student to, re- to be remediated on a test. I'd much rather than be remediated on a, you know, on a subject, on, on skills. And so those are the types of opportunities that we can change what we're focusing on at the state level, the investment at the local level can change as well. I'm going to talk about all these things in uh, just a moment. Let me tell our listeners again that if you uh, have a question or a comment uh, for Secretary Rivera, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I want to stick to the, the money aspect of it for just a few minutes, and I know we have some callers on the line who um, have some questions about funding as well. Um, you mentioned you know, accurately, obviously, that uh, there are some school districts in the state that are spending like $9,000 per student, but mm-hmm. some that are spending 14, 15, maybe even more than that per student. But there are some districts where there are high poverty levels where a lot is being spent. I mean, some of those higher figures are being spent per student, mm-hmm. but it hasn't translated into performance. You know, 
there are people who look at that and say, well, that's just a, it, it shows that money is not the answer. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to speak in, in generalities in, in, a, in a sense so I know that this can vary, you know, community to community, right. district All to district. The, when we have 500 districts, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, everything's different. Absolutely. So, so it's interesting. When we look at overall student funding, you tend to look at it in an aggregate. You know, you look at the total student number and then you tend to, you know, you divide it out by the number of kids and, and you say this is how much, um, you know, we're spending per child. What we don't always take into account, and this is a great opportunity to share, you know, extremely quickly, the 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 needs of the student that you're educating um, is one of those variables. So if you have a, you know, I I taught I I've taught all my career in in urban school districts and in large districts, um, and I you know I still live in an urban district. So when you look at the district that I served in and, and the district that I still live in, had an extremely large special needs population. Um, and many of which, many of the parents, and I, I know them, moved into the district to, to receive those services. So if you have a life skills student, for example, which may be in a classroom of uh, five, or, you know, five or six students and um, you know, practically needs a, a one-on-one, both life skills and, and um, instructional needs instructor, you know, that, that could be a student that, you know, at a cost of about $160,000 a year. Uh, if you have a special needs uh, or you know, just a learning disability student, the, the additional support's there. Um, English language learning students that may have um, additional support um, supports in, in English, um, you know, to to acquire to attain um, proficiency in the in the English language. So sometimes you have to look at it district to district because you can't just take the total dollar amount and divide it by the number of kids. Whereas you have some you know some other districts that just don't have the population of special needs students, or they tend to um, you know families tend to move to other to other areas. Um, the other you know you take into account issues of homelessness. So you take into account um, you know issues of, of um, you know, extremely concentrated and, um, and extreme poverty. And, and those are all those factors that, that come into play when you're going to look at the average cost per student and wonder why, okay, but we're investing an additional, you know, 40, you know, 30, 40 million dollars in this, into this school district. Where is it going? Why is the class size still up? Where is it? Well, it's really to differentiate around the needs of kids. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that uh, you were superintendent of an urban district. That's the Lancaster School District. You still live in the Lancaster School mm-hmm. District. Uh, Lancaster is one of those districts that have had uh, many students moving in where English is a second language. It's not their primary language. Just recently, there was a lawsuit settled that uh, there were several uh, foreign-born students who said that uh, they were not getting an equal education. And courts ruled in in their favor. Um, But, you know, this goes back to your original statement about creating an equal education. I mean, what are your thoughts on, I'm not going to get you to talk specifically about Lancaster, but it's Mm -hmm. a good example, microcosm, of what districts all over the state are facing. Mm -hmm. So so I can't speak specific to Lancaster to, you know, to be fair, one is when you're the outgoing superintendent and and you you still live there, you try to be a parent as much as you can. So I didn't get involved. I don't read as many of the articles. I don't uh, get involved in the day-to-day. You know, I just deal now with my son and his lunch menu issues and, you know, (laughs) making sure he wears his uniform every day. Um, You know, I think, but as I look at education as a whole, um, and and I understand, you know, whenever you're you're really serving um, a needier population, and you know, in, in many of our urban school districts, I you know started in uh, Philadelphia, and then um, you know, and, and been very fortunate for for many years now to be in Lancaster. You you balance, you know, the fact that you you try to provide good high quality instruction with your you know for your neediest kids, 
while at the same time providing extremely rigorous and, and well-balanced instruction for your less needy students. And, you know, and there are many communities across the Commonwealth that have, you know, extremely poor communities and wealthier, you know, working middle, upper class communities. And, you know, the, the challenge in education is that you don't get to say, I'm only going to focus on my poor kids and, you know, my, my more affluent kids that come from good families are going to take care of themselves because they have needs, too. And, you know, and one of the things that I've learned in, in, you know, over the course of the years now in education is that that's the beauty of education, that you can differentiate the need around the needs of all of your kids, whether they're from an affluent community or they're from a poorer community. Kids are kids, and families want to know that they're sending their kids to school every day to, be, to, to, to learn, to be cared for, and to be provided opportunities. Mm-hmm. But I do want to get back to that. Sure. What, I, what I said, even if we're talking in generalities, how do you ensure that individual school districts, when they do have a group of, okay, whether it's special education, whether mm-hmm. it is uh, students that have language barriers, how do you make sure that they do get an equal education? And I think that's where the um, Future Ready PA Index you know, comes in, which is why we're trying to take a look at education so much more holistically. First, you start with a really good measure you know, a really good tool to measure education. And that not only, you know, it's not only an accountability tool, but it really does change climate and culture. We know as, as you know, uh, you know, professionals, we know as, um, as human beings, you're going to focus on, on, what you, on what you measure. And if we come up with a good, holistic, intentional tool of measurement, we're going to, you know, we're working to ensure that school districts are focusing on those measurements as well. Not a standardized test, but making sure that kids are learning, you know, to, to read and, and to perform math and have access to high-quality programs. Now, after you have the measurement in place, it, it will then be our job as a department to look at, you know, those, those measures and, um, you know, start to define and identify schools that we may have to go in and provide support and remediation for. You know, it's interesting, 500 school districts, as, you know, as you know, and, um, you know, at last, I think a week or two weeks ago, you know, I got to spend the day up at, um, at Clarion Erie, um, you know, and, and uh, Plum um, and, and the Pittsburgh area. And even within, you know, that, that two-hour, you know, geographic span, you know, incredibly different communities. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so then when you take into account, you know, everything that, that, you know, that all the students we serve from between Philadelphia and, you know, in Pittsburgh, there, you know, if you look at a profile of a, of a child, there are thousands of, of different profiles of children. And so what we have to do is come up with a simple way that we can start to identify their needs and, and focus on meeting those needs. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is Pennsylvania Secretary of Education, Pedro Rivera. We're talking about a number of different issues, as you can tell, and we encourage you to ask a question or make a comment. You can do that by calling 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. On Facebook, we're on WITF's Facebook page to leave a question or comment. On Twitter, we're at smarttalkwitf. All right, let's take some phone calls. Tom is in Mechanicsburg. Tom, thanks for being patient on the air. Sure. Uh, thanks, um, Secretary Rivera. I'm, I'm married to a teacher, and I hear a lot of talk about uh, the cuts to federal programs, and I know that Pennsylvania gets a lot of federal money. I wonder how you are uh, going to handle the cuts 
that might be coming from the federal government. Thank you very much for your call, Tom. Great question. Yeah, Tom, thank you for the question, and, and absolutely please thank your wife for, for serving with us in our schools as well. You know, this continues to be one of the areas that, that, um, that concern us. Um, you know, I'll share some specific examples of what we're seeing um, proposed, and of course, proposed is, is the, the operative word. Hopefully, you know, it doesn't ultimately end up being, um, you know, being approved. But, you know, understanding reductions in, um, in after-school program dollars, for example. You know, for us, educators, that, that's a serious concern. I mean, that's the time where we connect with kids and, um, you know, we, we provide intervention or we provide um, enrichment to help build those skills. Um, in many school districts that have been forced to cut um, art, music, humanity classes over, over the course of the past, um, you know, decade, these are the, they are the opportunities where we get to bring partners in to provide, you know, art, music instruction. Um, you know, I understand, and from the parent level, the first time I ever had to reduce um, an after-school program, um, you know, support. I got a call from a parent, and, and she asked, so what do after-schools look like, you know, this year? Are we going to be able to provide it at, at such and such a school? And I answered her with all the academic, you know, narrative. Well, you know, I'm not sure, but here's what we're going to do to make up for it academically, and here's what we're going to do programmatically to make up for it. And she says, that's great to hear. But I need to know if I'm going to have to leave my job because I work second shift and this provides a great opportunity for me. And quite frankly, you know, private child care after school care is more is is more expensive than um, what I actually make, you know, in my current job. And, and so I have to, you know, to make a life decision. And that was an aha moment for me where, you know, I understood that, you know, the focusing on on teaching and learning, the focusing on, on programs. And I should have known better because my mother made the same decisions. But, um, you know, to hear to hear, uh, you know, a parent, you know, explain how their quality of life um, w- was impacted by by some of the programs we offered. So, so that's a concern. Um, Title II uh, for us is a concern. Teacher professional development. Um, you know, the you know teachers, you know, which, you know, Tom would absolutely know. Um, it's hard to, to pull them sometimes during the course of the school year because we don't want them leaving their classrooms and we want them to continue to provide instruction um, in school. So we try to take advantage of before school, after school, weekends and, and summers to develop them around new curriculum. And, you know, uh, someone who's not engaged in teaching may ask, well, what do you have to pull them out at that time? So imagine teaching a new subject or having to learn anything new. If you're in, you know, if you're in industry, if you're in advanced manufacturing and you have a new, um, you know, a new, new piece of equipment you're going to work with, you have to, to learn how to manage that equipment. And you might be lucky enough that your boss lets you do it during the day. We not only we don't always have the opportunity to to do that. So that lack of investment could really hurt the educational system. Um, and then lastly, I'll, I'll share they froze staffing at the um, you know the the um, USD the U.S. Department of Education. And you know it's it's really interesting when you look at those those big um, institutions where many folks would come in through political employment. But it's you know it's the, the the staff that falls under them, which they call you know the lifelong employees that know you know how education runs runs across the country. So so my greatest concern is who's going to be there to help you know navigate you know all the states and you know in the country to to make good sound decisions around how to invest in education at a national level. So so they continue, there continues to be a number of concerns for us nationally. How much does Pennsylvania get from the feds? Oh, you know what? I don't want to. I don't want to pretend to to share that number, but it's it's extremely. I mean, it's you know practically in the in the billions. I mean, we receive um, significant money through Title One, um, special education, Title Two, um, you know, three and four. So it's it's um, there there are a number of um, programs that are supported nationally, uh, many of which are are expected to take a hit under the proposal. Before we go back to the phones uh, and answer more listener questions, uh, talking about uh, funding. 
there were, uh, you know, it's still a controversy about whether it was actually a cut during the Corbett administration. But uh, now during the Wolf administration, Governor Wolf ran um, for governor, promising to increase funding for education. And that has happened. Uh, this year's budget, it's uh, $100 million. And it seems as though there's agreement on both sides of the aisle uh, f- for that increase. Brings um, education funding you know, basic education funding to about mm-hmm. a, a six billion dollars. Um, again, I, I, I got. I, I know it's hard, and this is mm-hmm. not an, an easy question to answer. But a lot of people say, "Well, how much is enough?" I mean, yes, we are increasing, and probably most people would agree that that needs to happen. But do we ever reach a number where we say, "You know, we think we're spending just the right amount here"? Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's a, it's a great question, and and I think you know when we look at you know specifically our, our system of education, we're looking at it through two lenses. One, absolutely, you, you know, hearing the question and and you know looking to answer the question, how much is enough? You know, in terms of education, um, you know, funding and the, the investment of education. The second aspect, uh, you know, of it, the second question that comes up often is how do we know we're spending it in the right areas. Because, you know, what we've learned, and, you know, you continue here, it's not that their folks are concerned about, you know, continuing to pay and invest in education, is they want to make sure they're, they're making a sound investment. And I think, you know, part of it is, is multifaceted. One, it varies communities, community to community. So I know, you know, I don't, you, you rarely will hear me say that, you know, the cuts in education, I say the reductions, you know, over the course of few the past few years, because even when you level funded, unfortunately, um, any industry that's very heavy employee um, driven, you're running a deficit. You're running a deficit budget because labor is one of your biggest costs. Labor's labor is the biggest cost, and 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 so whenever you're you're looking at making that investment, if you're not even able, able to cover, um, you know, the cost of that investment, then you have to make reductions. And for many years, especially you know in recent history, schools have had to do two things: one, increase taxes significantly to the local communities, which is painful. Secondly, and then cut programs while you're increase t- increasing taxes, um, and and reducing staff. And so you know, as a taxpayer, as a you know, when you whenever you send in, um, you know, your property tax bill year to year, you're you're asking yourself, right, I'm paying more in taxes, but you know, there are not as many programs, or the programs that I like are, are being reduced, and you know, and the like. And and so that's why you know, first we have to do a better job of communicating where the investment's going. Um, it's also why we have to create measures that matter to, to parents, that matter to, to the community at, at large. Education is also very interesting when you think about, you know, the investments because, you know, technology is driving, you know, so much more of what we do. Right now we've created this, you know, our vision, understanding that practically 78% of jobs in the Commonwealth, and, you know, by definitely before, but we've been saying by 20, 2025, is going to require some type of industry certificate, two-year degree or four-year degree. And so that means we not only have to change, you know, the scope of our higher education system, but K-12 has to be prepared to move um, it to move in that area. You can no longer leave high school or just, you know, graduate from high school and expect to, you know, to earn and find gainful employment. And, you know, those that evolution of, of the K-12 system and early childhood is, is exactly what, you know, we have to continue to invest in. So I wish I could sit here and say, you know, what's the dollar amount when it's enough and is enough. But I think what's probably more important, which is what we're trying to do um, at the state level, is create our goals, your expectations around systems of measurement and what kids should have in place by the time they graduate from high school and ask, you know, parents and, and communities to, to invest in those areas. Let's take some phone calls. Gary is in Juniata County. County, uh, Gary, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Yeah, I don't want to get anybody depressed, but we have uh, the farm with the guest cottages, and we get people from all over the world. And I would say 
Very few of them are wealthy. Most of them are middle class, maybe a little bit upper middle class. They have to rent a car to get here. Um, you know, the, I guess what I'm trying to say is we just had a family. They were uh, He was born and raised in Paraguay, and she was born and raised in Bulgaria. She was speaking Chinese. He was speaking German, and they both were speaking English to a three-year-old while they were here. So all the animals were you know, in different names and whatever. At three years old, this little girl was just soaking it in, and they certainly weren't rich. I mean, I I can tell you, they, they do work in New York, so you would say, oh, the rich people live in New York. Um, the difference sometimes between the European kids that come here, and we get very few Pennsylvania families. Most everybody's from New York or Washington, D.C., and the difference is huge. And the other thing I was going to say is we just did the Philly Food and Farm Fest. That was this Saturday, and it was all day in Philly. And I haven't been to Philly for quite a long time. And the businesses that had to say no to the soda tax and whatever, and I can't even remember what that was about. And then I was like, oh, I think that has something to do with you know funding for public education. So I was going to ask the secretary if that either passed or if it's made an impact or if it's helping the kids out and Certainly, anything that they can tax in Philly that could go to the school district, I would be absolutely for. But thank you very much. Well, Gary, you covered a lot of territory there, but I want to kind of start with his his first observation or first statement. You hear it, and probably you kind of bristle when you do hear it, that uh, there are constant comparisons between uh, different nations, students from different nations, and American students. Mm -hmm. And it it sounds as if Gary was even making some comparisons with uh, other states' students. Mm What about that? How do you answer that question? Yeah, I, first, I always remind when, whenever, I mean, you know, I, we do the same thing in the Department of Education. I do the same thing in terms of reading the literature as to what educa- the educational movement, um, you know, internationally is and, and what comparisons we can make. And, and I always have to remind myself as I start to become frustrated and depressed in, in reading the data. Um, I have to remind myself that, you know, here in, in, in the United States and, and here in the Commonwealth, we teach every child. Um, you know, as a, as a developed country, as, as you know, a, a democratized country, um, you know, the, one of the differences between our education system and many of those that we compare ourselves um, to and, and, you know, across the globe, um, you know, we, we teach everyone that, that walks, you know, through through our door. I mean, we have a compulsory school age, you know, of, of course, um, you know, many would argue on, on, on both sides of that. But the truth of the matter is, regardless of your needs, um, you know, we educate you. And, and regardless of, you know, socioeconomic standing, um, we educate you regardless of, uh, you know, geographic, um, you know, location, um, whether you're in a, you know, a rural community or now what I'm hearing from tier community or suburban community, urban community. We provide, uh, you know, free, high, qual- you know, quality education to you, which is, which is, uh, you know, what, what um, our expectation is. And, um, and our systems of measurement include every single one of those children that, that go through the public educational system. So if you if you start to take into account those those variances, you'll you'll see that the gap is not, you know, always as great in certain areas, um, you know, as as you kind of read in aggregate. Now, that being said, we do still have in the Commonwealth a, signi- a significant achievement gap. Um, we have a significant achievement gap, you know, in terms of, you know, minority students. Um, in the Commonwealth, we have a significant achievement gap when you're looking at um, socioeconomic status, you know, higher socioeconomic communities versus lower socioeconomic communities. And, um, you know, that's why, you know, we have to continue to focus on, on good, um, high-quality instruction. 
I think the the second is and quickly for you know around um, um, Philadelphia. So the the funding in Philadelphia through um, through the soda tax um, was used to create um, some of, much of it was used to create an early childhood program. So it didn't go to the school district, but they created early childhood opportunities for students in um, um, in Philadelphia. And you know for the most part, we're realizing that it's um, extremely successful. They're they're able to um, create slots and um, and fill many of those slots. Now, you know, it's interesting to see the success that it's had considering the fact that it's um, it was a mid-year start. And so, you know, any parent knows that, you know, if you're creating a new program in January, I'm probably going to say, well, let's wait until next September before I switch programs. Um, you know, secondly, um, you know, they're, they're finding that there are still there are waiting lists in some areas and they're identifying areas that no longer have, um, you know, have that need. And so, you know, by I think, you know, by all accounts as shared, um, their early childhood investment is, is looking to be um, e- extremely um, beneficial, um, successful. Not a popular tax, no. but uh, that's the, the, the measurement. is if, That would be a way to justify it. I think that the Mayor Kenny would look at it that way as if there is improvement there. Let's take another phone call from Leanne in Steelton. Leanne, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. My question is, how are we preparing kids for the STEM jobs that exist now? Thank you very much for your call. Very important question because you said yourself, Secretary, that uh, you know many of our jobs in the f- our future will be related to technology. When we're here, we're talking about science, technology, math. This is these are the jobs of the future for for many people. Absolutely. So, so I think you know we're we're extremely proud. This is one of the areas that we started to focus, um, you know, extremely aggressively early in our. Um, you know, early in this in the administration, when when I came on board, I, I you know one of the first questions I asked was so so talk to me about our STEM programs across the Commonwealth, and we realized we had we had no inventory, no no accounting of you know many of the great programs that um, that we under that we have here in uh, you know in PA, and and that actually came a result of a friend asking me the question. So I said, you know, that's a great question. Let me go back. So so as a result, we actually created a um, STEM advisory council of industry partners, business partners, um, STEM educators, um, folk, you know, industry that that um, has engaged as well as um, not for profit um, think tanks, and they they met over the course of a, of a number of weeks and actually have created for us kind of um, our 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 STEM. Um, vision moving forward, and and they really you know hit us with some great stats that you know that I'd love to be able to share. I mean, right now our data is indicating, and we're, we're speaking about right now, but these are the students that we're preparing um, for. That by you know 2018, they're going to be approximately 300,000 Pennsylvania jobs that require some type of STEM skill or content knowledge. So some of what we've been doing is ensuring that um, you know our career and technical education programs as well as um, our high school program crosswalks exist to, to integrate um, STEM and, and STEM-related technology. We actually have been um, connecting. We, we just had a, um, a conversation with a, um, with a not-for-profit that engages in coding um, you know, to train teachers in elementary schools how to integrate coding as part of their um, as part of their Coding. So, so computer coding. That's, so right. It's, so okay. it's interesting. That's what I thought. Yeah. We, were, we always used to think of coding as a programming. Right. right. Um, but, but it's no longer the, the, the old programming of, you know, of the past. I mean, if you work in an advanced manufacturing and a robot is doing, you know, uh, much of the work on the plant for anymore, someone has to ensure that it's 
you know, completing its task in, in an efficient and, and um, acceptable manner. So it's everything from that to folks that are writing full-scale programs to, you know, the drive applications or, or um, you know, to drive industry. Um, we've also been been looking specifically at, um, you know, creating STEM ecosystems across uh, across the country. So these are the these are communities that um, have embraced STEM that, that can serve as models, you know, for other communities across the Commonwealth. So we currently have four. Um, Ecosystems across, um, you know, across PA that that are really helping to drive um, our science, technology, engineering, and math vision. So this has become a, a significant um, focus for us in, you know, in the Department of Ed, but also of the governor. Um, you know, to the end that um, you know one of our most um, you know successful programs is the um, the the governor's science fair, where we bring students together from all across you know the Commonwealth to to, to present um, their programs and, and their um, science projects, and many of Ninety percent of which are, are related to those STEM activities, and then um, you know those programs are are, then, are celebrated and, and pushed out um, across the Commonwealth. So this is one of those areas that we've been um, very extremely aggressive, not only with um, providing allowing for exposure, but helping to prepare teachers across the Commonwealth to to facilitate in their classrooms. Let me follow up on that just a, a bit. One of the challenges that. Uh, uh, we have, we, when you say we, it's not just Pennsylvania, but I think this is nationwide, uh, is getting young women, uh, girls more involved in the, the STEM topics. This has been something, I mean, I remember seeing a, a, a figure, and admittedly, this was a few years ago, mm-hmm. that it was 80% of the, those who were interested in STEM careers and being trained in, in, in STEM uh, were boys, were, were young men. Uh, and I know Lancaster, for example, has a couple different programs to encourage young women to, to mm-hmm. get involved, too. What about the st- on the state level? Do you have anything in place or are there plans mm-hmm. to get more young women involved in the STEM uh, in the STEM field? So there are lots of, um, you know, many school districts locally are now, you know, focusing you know, heavily on young girls um, and getting them involved in the sciences early on through exposure. Um, you know, through through actual um, application, and you know, so so what we've been doing, you know, much like where you know where I live, there are many school districts that that are engaging in that best practice. So we've been kind of highlighting and making that best practice available to other school districts to adopt. Because one of the one of the hardest thing, things to do in education is address an issue and feel like you have to start you know from scratch or, or you know start from you know from a yeah, copy what works yeah, yeah copy what works and, right. and you know that and that's probably that should be our greatest role as the Department of Education is make it available. I mean, we don't have to invent everyone. There's so everything. There's so many smart, you know, individuals out there doing amazing work. So we want to make it available across, um, you know, uh, across the board. I can also share with you with transitioning to to higher ed a bit. Much of what our technical colleges are doing and community colleges are doing, working with their local school districts to expose, you know, young girls and and um, you know youngsters to to programs is extremely important. Part of what we're asking schools to engage in, they they create what's called um, a three thirty nine plan which is a college and career readiness plan, which requires a business and industry council. We want, to bring, we want to create a little more relevance around that 339 plan. So this is why schools engage in um, job fairs, you know, or excuse me, car- uh, career days at, right, at elementary right, school. Yeah. At middle school, they do a um, interest inventory, um, you know, and how that interest aligns to careers. And then at high school, career pathways. It, it's exactly why we're, you know, we're pushing um, that area. I mean, I d- talked about my son, but I think about it, and I'm always reminded of a six-year-old little girl. And she came home. Uh, she's in kindergarten. 
and she came home the other day with a hard hat, um, and she goes to a public school, and a hard hat and a pair of goggles on and her own, um, you know, Thaddeus Stevens School's of, School of Technology ID badge. And, you know, and, and she, you know, kind of, she already knew. She she wants to, she said, I want to build tall buildings when, when you know, when, when I get older. But those are the types of opportunities. A six-year-old coming home and embracing, you know, that, you know, technology already, you know, talking to, to us about, you know, college. These are the types of opportunities we have to create for all public schools across the Commonwealth. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest this morning is Pennsylvania Secretary of Education, Pedro Rivera. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Let's take a few emails, Secretary. Melanie sends us a note here asking, she says, Our lifestyles have changed, so why do we still have an educational system as such a giant time off in the summer, most classes spend the first few uh, first months of school reteaching what was taught the year before. Wouldn't it be more beneficial for education if we sent children year round? Great question. Now you got a smile on your face too. Yeah, right? I, it, well, you know this is this is always one of those topics that that come up, and and the moment you mention it. Um, 50% of your constituents love the idea. 50% of the constituents want to chase you away with a with a with a pitchfork. Um, you know, I think two number of issues. So first, we can absolutely take a look at year-round schooling and, and take into account the summer slide and how it impacts teaching and learning. And that is a significant concern. I mean, we, you know, we invest significantly in um, summer programs because we know that students who are not engaged in high quality programs over the summer do lose learning, especially around literacy, um, you know, and, and numeracy as well. But especially around literacy, we notice that um, that students do slide in, in um, you know, in reading when they're not engaged in good high quality programs. So there's evidence that supports, um, you know, year-round schooling, year-round programming of, of some sort. Um, you know, to engage teaching and learning. The the two big issues that, that always tend to, to, you know, drive the conversation in, in a different direction, one is cost, because it, it is costly to, to one, to retrofit, secondly, to, you know, to, to um, you know, to change the programs in that way. And and then secondly, there there's, you know, a, a need of, of the general community, although we don't live in a agrarian society anymore, not everyone, you know, farms over, over the summer, there, there still continues to be large conversations around other industries. I mean, as a matter of fact, um, I'm sure there may be another call asking, you know, why do schools start before Labor Day? We should start them after Labor Day. I mean, that argument around um, year-round schooling, when school should start and when school should end, is is one depending on on your, um, you know, your your experience, your background, and and your thoughts would um, would can be all over the place. Which is why um, I believe that here in the Commonwealth, but also nationally, there there's been no momentum around picking one program over another. There are some school districts in Pennsylvania that have attempted, uh, or at least proposed, going year-round York. In particular, I mm-hmm. think of York has uh, talked about it for a long time. But there are other states that have different systems than we do. Sometimes it's tied to weather and that kind of thing. But you know, two weeks off here, and it's not tied to any holiday or mm-hmm. anything like that. What? What has the research shown as far as student performance, as far as retention, all those things? So, so really, it's it's all driven by the program. So, even when you look at you know the the research um, around year-round schooling, it's you know how you you know how you manage the breaks, how you manage the the instructional program as a whole, how you build in um, you know the the intervention periods during the block. So, one of the challenges with um, you know with year-round schooling is they don't 
necessarily teach the same um, you know, so, so I'll pick like Algebra 1. It may not be a year-round Algebra 1 program. They may do Algebra 1 and Algebra one and Algebra 2 over the course of the year. And so if a student doesn't complete Algebra 1, you have to find the pathway for that second time, that second part of the year for that student to come, to come back around. So the success is really more tied to the program, um, you know, than it is, um, you know, than it is the actual calendar um, year of the, of, of the um, you know, of the school model. So it's, it's really all about teaching and learning. I mean, it's funny, you can find two different communities, and there are many communities out there with a 10-month calendar that perform, you know, greater than, than all, tw- you know, year-round schools, 12-month schools. And there are some progr- programs out there, 12-month schools, that, that do an amazing job. You mentioned earlier, uh, and we talk about it often when we discuss education, is that Pennsylvania has 500 school districts. Mm -hmm. Um, Former Governor Ed Rendell proposed consolidating or merging some of those school districts. It's already happened on a couple occasions. But I don't think that I'm going to get you to say, oh, yeah, we should have fewer school districts. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm realistic, Mm -hmm. Secretary. Mm -hmm. But would it be easier, would it be more efficient if we did have fewer school districts? Mm -hmm. So, so I've had a number of conversations with um, school districts that that you know are interested in in consolidation of, of some way. Um, you know, I, I I share the story and I'm I'm open and honest in saying so. My first, you know, year plus he, year here in 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 the state um, at the Department of Education, had we had five school districts that wanted to consolidate. I mean, it it, it wasn't only a financial issue, although it was a financial, though it was a result of financial difficulty, but it was also pro, uh, programmatic. I mean, sometimes there's just the scale, um, you know, where, in which you're not able to pro- offer as many programs as you'd like to for your kids, especially at the secondary level. And, you know, unfortunately, whereas um, there were five school districts that, that we, you know, would like to had seriously considered consolidation and we ran numbers and, and we provided technical assistance to them, there, we, we couldn't five, find five school districts that were willing to, to take them. Uh, you know, to merge with them, so so it's it's really a, a you know a challenge on on both on both ends. I mean, you have to take into account tax effort. I mean, everyone always says the football team, right? Everyone right, argues, right. which is an issue, which is an issue in some right, communities. Right. But you know, one one you know one of the things that that I found that came up even more. Um, you know, then you know, then then um, you know, athletics. It's it, you know, it was geographic area. It was um, you know, tax effort. It was um, you know, age of buildings, for example. And so, one, you know, it's, it's a hard conversation to have. But but I do want to you know speak quickly. I know I've, I've took a lot of time on that question. What we have been doing um, is taking you know is engaging in and working with the general assembly to look at you know potential tuitioning out of students. So you know we just had on Wilkinsburg tuition out to Pittsburgh to Westinghouse um, their high school students because they just you know the, the scale wasn't there. One it was, it was it was too expensive to try to run a small high school. Secondly they couldn't offer great programs. So just going you know a few miles away they had access to great career and technical education programs. Their advanced placement course um, opportunities practically quadrupled. Um, and, you know, the the board of Pittsburgh Promise just voted, which is a scholarship program, a college scholarship program up in Pittsburgh, just voted to accept those students. So not only did they get, you know, a greater quality of education, more programs, they now have college scholarships waiting for them, you know, upon graduation. So that's a great example. We're working with um, Elanco in Columbia, where they're sharing administration, um, you know, to, to try to bring down costs. East Lebanon County and yeah, Columbia and Lancaster County. And Columbia and yeah. Lancaster County. And, they're, um, and I, we just met with two other school districts um, 
you know, in the Northwest that are looking at um, creating a, an open campus type of platform where students can can migrate between their buildings. So although I may not be successful in consolidating school districts, but we're going to work really hard over the course of this administration to bring down cost, but more importantly, offer kids more programs. You know, we've gone about 50 minutes, and this is probably the ultimate question. I said that our fir- my first question was broad. Well, here's another broad question for you, Secretary. What works? When we talk about teaching students, we talk about an education, getting a great education, an equal education for students. What works in general terms? You know, education is, is you know, is a field that, you know, every day you're, you're changing the life of, of a student, changing the life of a child. You're, you're engaged in that community. So first, you know, what works, it, it has to be hard work. I mean, it's, it's, it's all, you know, rolling up your sleeves and engaging with kids in a meaningful way. And, and now the key word is meaningful. You have to have, you know, for us, I believe you have to have a system of measurement that really focuses on what the needs of students are. Rather than just a test. Rather than just a test. We have to do a better job of preparing, you know, teachers to, to you know, to enter the classroom and, and be prepared to be, um, you, know, the, the, you know, the best instructors they can be. We have to invest in leadership. We need good principals and good superintendents in our schools and, and in our communities. You know, and, and at the end of the day, we, we have to realize that, you know, this education system for all, you know, of, of the frustrations we, we see at the end of the day, it's the one field that we, we know, research shows, you know, increases in, you know, quality of life of students and families, transforms communities, and attracts business and industries to, you know, to states and, and to the Commonwealth. So, you know, again, I kind of go back, you know, to we have to make the investment, but we have to make sure that it's a meaningful investment. Let's take a phone call from Tracy in Gettysburg. Tracy, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I've seen online that you've traveled to a bunch of schools in Pennsylvania. I was just curious why you're doing that. I also wanted to see if you could come to Gettysburg sometime soon. <laughs> Thanks for your call. So an invitation right here on the air. No pressure at all. No, no pressure. <laughs> so, so, so Tracy, I, I share with folks um, my email. Um, you know, you can absolutely email me. Our email address is is right online, and we have a big map on on you know on our office. And whenever I receive an invitation, we put um, we put a pin right on that invitation. And if there's a, uh, an event or you know uh, some place I have to engage, I stop in as many school districts on my way there as I can. So, so please, um, you know, shoot us an email and I will absolutely, um, you know, add Gettysburg to the, you know, although I've been there a few times out there in the area a few times, but I'll add it to the list. Um, you know, one of the things that we understand in, in, in education, um, you know, and I learned this as, you know, as, as a superintendent, as a, as a principal and a, and a teacher, um, we are not going to do the best job we can in serving our kids and serving our communities. If, if we don't listen to to the members of that community and you know and one of the things that you know I share with folks I always go with my you know with my agenda and my talking points but I try to run through my agenda as quickly as possible and then take as much time listening and, and um, writing down notes and then following up on those notes you know after the fact and because you know as a Department of Education as a you know as an arm uh, you know of, of government, I truly believe that um, it's our job to serve our constituencies. And if I'm not out there listening and engaging, um, you know, with educators, then then I'm not doing the job that I need to do. We have about 90 seconds left, and I'm going to try to cover two questions here. One, real quickly, uh, what question are you asked most often? What topic is the biggest concern? Just real quick. Yeah. So, so always the big topic, you know, of discussion is how different are all school districts, you know, across the Commonwealth. Okay. Now, in the 60 seconds we have left, higher education, the state system of higher education faces some real challenges. Uh, there has been flat funding from the state. There were some cuts a few years ago, declining enrollment. 
uh, there's actually been, as a last resort, that uh, some universities may uh, have to be closed or merged. 30 seconds or less, state's role, what do you want to do? Yeah, so first, you know, we provide technical support to them and, and provide the data and support them both to the governor's office and to the members of the General Assembly accordingly. Um, they've been forced to look differently at higher ed, and I just want to throw out this stat that we learned. 70-plus percent of, of high school, you know, the high school graduates that go on to college go to our state universities. Uh, you know, kids, students tend to choose the, the um, within forty mile, a forty geographic mile, you know, from from their home. So, so state schools, whether you you like them, you love them, you argue for them or not, they are an important part of our infrastructure. Pennsylvania Secretary of Education Paige Rivera, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Coming up on tomorrow's program, another aspect of education. We'll talk about uh, charter schools and segregation, different kind of issue. That's on tomorrow's program. <laughs> 